We'd like to thank Highland Canine Training, LLC, one of the most diversified dog training companies in the world. They can help your agency start a new canine program or hone your existing skills if you're an experienced handler. Check them out at tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's the letter K, the number nine. Tell them you heard it here. I want to give a huge shout out to my guys at Police Canine Association. You can contact them through email at policecanineassociation@gmail.com at gmail.com or go to the website policecanineassociation.com or pk9a.com and check out their awesome gear. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Welcome everybody to episode four of Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Today we have a great guest, Mike Suttle, on with us from Logan Haas Kennels. Uh, We'll talk to Mike about a lot of different things, puppy related and breeding and anything else he really wants to talk about. Uh, Before we get into all that, my name is Eric Stambro. I'm from Van S Canine in Canton, Ohio and also the Police Canine Association. And with me, as always, is up my partner, Ted Summers, from Torchlight Canine and Working Dog Dry Goods out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ted, how are you? Doing well, man, doing well. So over here in Ohio, like everywhere else in this part of the country especially, it's been freezing cold, and we're kind of sick of it. <clears throat> but we're still training, doing a lot of work, and uh, having a good time. What's going on in Tulsa? Anything new? Uh, we just got back from SHOT. Had a, had a good time out there. Saw lots of handlers. Came back, doing some training, getting ready for uh, you and I are instructing at Breach Bing uh, Bite next week with the Tripwire Operation Kids. We're doing our class out there. It should be interesting. We had uh, one of my handlers over in Arkansas had a burglary call this week where <laughs> there were five people uh, in one house during the burglary call, and the dog was able to convince all five to come out. Uh, <laughs> they subsequently arrested all five. I my handler when I found out I was like, "Are you serious, dude?" He said, "Yes, sir." I'm like, "No way!" And he sent me a picture of the handcuffs. It's like, dude, that dog stopped more people. You had more arrests in that one call than a DUI checkpoint. And then officer of the year has a freaking tail now. I mean, holy cow! So five surrenders. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, it still counts. It drops your bite ratio. That's for sure. So <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, other than that, we're getting some bed bugs, do- bed bug dogs done. We got a couple explosive dogs and, uh, rocking and rolling. Good. Yeah. Today, yeah. Wednesdays are training days. This is a Wednesday. We're recording this. I had 17 dogs out today. We did all kinds of, you know, me, I'd like to do a bunch of goofy stuff. Um, we did some muzzle still person decoys, had a lot of fun with that. <clears throat> a couple handlers got muzzle punched by their own dogs, which I laugh at, but because <laughs> it's not me so uh but uh anyways doing our usual here so um you want to go ahead and introduce mike sure we've got mike subtle from logan haas kennels uh out in west virginia uh they got the mud run coming up pretty soon which mike's going to talk about we'll have him talk about mike has been breeding and working uh police canines and military working dogs for 20 plus years and is sort of one of the preeminent guys in North America when it comes to uh, working dogs and working bloodlines and everything else. They do a fantastic job over there. There's a waiting list for dogs from their kennels and generally all around does a fantastic job. Mike's also very good at puppy imprinting and very, very good at detection stuff. Um, So with that, Mike, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks, Thanks for having me here. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. So I guess let's start out uh, with a little bit of your background. Uh, you know how you got into canine, how you started Logan Haas, the story of what brings us to this conversation. Yeah, so so my working dog background goes back prior to traditional military and police canines. It actually started with sled dogs uh, when I was pretty young here, growing up in West Virginia. So I've been breeding working dogs since I was about twelve, actually. Uh, the first several years of that was was sled dogs, Siberia Huskies, Alaska Malamutes, and then uh, I got involved in herding dogs and uh, joined an IPO club, and then started to learn a little bit about bite work. And then I went in the Marine Corps. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, I did 
fair bit of time uh, working with the canines. I was not in canine in the Marine Corps. I was actually a primary marksman instructor, but that opened up a lot of doors to the military police side of the of the military. Uh, and through there came canine. Well, my background being IPO a little bit before that, um, I found out pretty quick that the military working dog program, at least back 20 plus years ago, uh, they didn't know a whole, you know, there was a lot of stuff that they needed to learn. There was a lot of room for improvement. And, and even though I was a young kid with very limited background in IPO, even I was able to help some of their dogs along back then. And, and that really got me passionate about the need for fixing the problem that I could see really early on. And so from there, I got out of the Marine Corps and I partnered up with um, uh, a pretty good friend of mine, Matt Aikenhead from Signature Canine, and he and I took Signature Canine and, and ran with it, so to speak. And from that, that really opened up a lot of doors in the military and, and law enforcement uh, because we were doing seminars, we were doing equipment demos, and I always had dogs that I was traveling with. And, and I, I kind of found out that everywhere we would go to demo some some of our bite equipment, uh, the dog I had in the truck was always better than the dogs that we were demoing with wherever we were at. So I had a lot of people that were like, yeah, we like the suit. We like the sleeve. We like your muzzles, but where can we get dogs like that? And so that just kind of rolled over into, you know, uh, once we, once I sold my part of the equipment company, I just concentrated nothing but on the dogs themselves. And we already had the customer base from the equipment company. So that made the transition pretty easy. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, you know, at what point in time did you start saying, you know what, I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to start bringing dogs over and I'm going to do the program. I mean, so like the sled dog program, you know, I mean, I'm sure genetics and gun dogs and, and, and genetics are genetics. So, I mean, you know, moving from, you know, one discipline to another was probably fairly straightforward. But I mean, at that point, once you sold your portion of signature, did you go all in with uh, Logan Haas at that point? Was it still Logan Haas or was it something else? Yeah, no, it was I named it after my son. My oldest son's name is Logan. I named the business after him um, and pretty much went in all, all in. You know, I was heading towards all in before we sold the company, before we sold Signature Canine. And once it was sold, then I absolutely went all in. I lost my mind and built a half a million dollar kennel and at that point i decided i needed to make some money to make that payment so that meant going to europe often i was going over to holland about every six weeks for shit the first several years sorry about that guy for the first no, uh, no, several me, it's years, okay. <laughs> uh, i was going over to holland about every six weeks and you know I, I really got i got hooked up with some really good guys over there a guy who's became one of my best friends ever uh Durban campus i uh, love him like a brother uh, and Gerben absolutely helped me get started. You know, uh, he, he knew exactly the type of dog I was looking for and he knew how to find it, but he and I just clicked instantly where we were very, you know, we got along well in the training field. We got along well in the bars. We got along well as friends and as business partners. And, and he really helped me a lot when it came to finding the type of dogs that we needed. Um, because as you know, the, the, the need for a good dog far out, you know, far outweighs the availability of good dogs. And so, oh, yeah. you know, s selling a dog is not hard. Selling a dog is very easy. Finding the dog that's worth selling is the hard part. And, uh, you know, Gerb was able to help me do that. Not only dogs that he found, but, but contacts that I made through him. I now have probably 50 very reliable contacts that I made in Holland from Gerben. Um, so, you know, I give him full credit for getting, for helping me get that ball rolling in the right direction early on. But yeah, the the uh, the dogs that we got, you know, were were some of the best some of the best dogs I've seen to this day, you know, and some of the best dogs I've ever had have came came from Gerben. So, and that brings up an interesting point, you know. I mean, we're going to ask you about a couple of very specific dogs here pretty quick, but I do know that your favorite dog personally is not one that I think a lot of people would imagine because you know, guys like you or guys like Ritland or guys like you know several of the guys that are in that community. They're going to say, you know, oh, what's your favorite dog? And they just expect you to just vomit Duco 2 out of your mouth. But in reality, you know, your favorite dog is? My favorite dog was, was Rudy from Seelix Home, which is a Chanko son. Right. Um, uh, I mean, he's dead now. I, I, bought, I bought Rudy uh, as a stud dog, and I bought his littermate brother, Nico, and sold to the West Coast. In fact, I don't know if 
Nico was out. I don't, I'm not sure when Eric was out there, if he remembers Nico or not. Uh, Nico came after uh, Ritland and Wayne were working out there. But uh, anyway, yeah, Mike, I bought Mike. Uh, Nico was deployed when I first got there, and then he came back, and uh, you know they sat him in the kennel for a couple of weeks, and then we started working him probably January of fourteen, and then he was still there when I left. Yeah, very nice little dog. Uh, I, I will tell you that having had both of those dogs, Rudy was much better in every area. Nico was a fantastic dog, absolutely a fantastic dog. But Rudy was just noticeably better in every area. And, and you just can't, a dog like that, you just can't find. Um, by far, my, my favorite dog that I've ever seen. But he anyway, he's a Django son. And Django, of course, you know, is a pretty pretty significant, you know, producer in the KMDD program. He's a, he's a Duco grandson. I think Django has over 50 title offspring. Um, right. And, and Duco has probably as many as well, but. But yeah, those lines are, are for me, they, they produce high numbers of very complete working dogs. You know, dogs that are that have the health that everybody looks for. They have the intensity to drive. They're very social dogs. I'll be honest with you. I've had a lot of direct Duco 2 offspring, and, and I like the Django offspring better. Uh, for what I look for, they, they, have, they seem to have higher intensity in the hunt and the retrieve. And for me, that's super important. Uh, the Duco dogs are very big, big, powerful dogs physically, and they're big biters. But they just they seem a little dry by comparison. If if I can, you know, if only the viewers or, or the listeners understand what I mean when I say dry, but not not the fiery type of intensity in the hunt and retrieve that that I really like to see. And for me, that Rudy dog was the epitome of intensity, and that's that's the type of dog I really like. Awesome, awesome. So you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, when you were working with some of the other when like some of the early military stuff you saw a problem from the very beginning and it's interesting because you know Ritland when we had him on a couple of shows ago kind of echoed a similar issue so you know Mike made some pretty interesting comments back uh, a couple of weeks ago we asked him you know what we think the the future is for police canine and for uh, you know, special operations dogs and everything else. And, you know, I kind of expected some kind of, of course, it's Ritlin, so you you can always kind of expect the non-expected for, and he'll definitely tell you what he thinks. But his answer was extremely interesting because he said, you know, we're basically fucked if we don't do something about breeding. And, you know, he made the comment that we have overfished that pond and, you know, we go and we select these badass dogs from Holland and Belgium and wherever, and they go to police departments, they go to special operations units, and they're never collected, they're never bred, they're never anything. So we're taking the best genetic, or well, what we think are the best genetics, and we're not doing anything with them other than letting them work. So how much, it, one, do you, I mean, are you on the same page there? And if so, like, is that sort of how Logan Haas, like, kind of became where you're at today with the terms of like selecting dogs to breed and selling and what you do for selecting dogs at early ages with puppies and everything else. Yeah. Real and I have had that discussion many times that we're absolutely on the same page with that. And I saw the writing on the wall there shit, 10 years ago. Um, you know, he's exactly right. The, the best of the best dog, you know, everyone, always, you hear this rumor all the time that all oh, the best dogs stay in Holland. That's just simply not the truth. The best dogs go to the highest bidder. That's the bottom line. Like, there's not much loyalty in the KMDV. It's not like IPO where those guys take a puppy and they, and they put an IPO 3 on it and they show the damn dog 75 more times and it dies with them when he's 18 years old on their couch. The KMDV isn't like that. It's not, it's not designed to be like that. The KMDV, they breed the dogs, they title the dogs, and they sell the dogs, and they start again. And that's what the, the KMPV is really is about, is preparing dogs for police. Well, dogs don't make police dogs if you title them and they stay on your couch. So they title them and they sell them, and they sell them to the highest bidder. Now, that's, there are some very good dogs that stay in Holland because the Dutch police are willing to pay pretty good money for them. But I promise you, if you're willing to pay better money, you can get the best dogs out of Holland. So the rumor that the best dogs stay in Holland just isn't true. The best dogs go to who's willing to pay the most money for them. And the, the dogs that we were selecting for these tier one contracts, those contracts paid pretty good money. So 
the vendors were in a position where we were able to pay more money than the Dutch police were willing to pay. So we, we had access to the best dogs, and we bought the best dogs. The problem is where we all fucked up is we sold those dogs. Now, I kept, you know, occasionally we would keep a dog back, but, you know, in hindsight, we should have collected every one of those damn dogs before we sold them to, to their end use because he's right. Once they go to the to the military or once they go to a, to a SWAT team somewhere, they're never to be seen again in terms of, of the gene pool. Um, and you know, not to say they all, they all just disappear and get killed, but, but they don't get bred with again. If they do, it's on the super down low and not many people have access to those bloodlines. So, you know, what we've essentially done over the last 10 or 15 years is we have, you know, we have removed the best genetics from the gene pool and placed it in a spot where it's not going to be bred. And that's stupid on our, on our part, but that's what we've done. Now, I'm not saying there still aren't excellent dogs over there because there are for sure. Um, but it's a hell of a lot harder to find, you know, if, if you back up 10 years ago, you could go to Holland and come back on one trip and come back with 10 very strong titled PH1 dogs with good bloodlines that were, you know, tier one quality dogs, all of which would have been of breeding quality. And you cannot do that today. There's just no way. You go on a buy trip today, you're lucky if you come back with two dogs that are worth a shit. So, Mike, when you go over there for a buy trip, um, how many countries are you having to go to now to get, you know, say well, 10? I, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I don't go to any other countries anymore. Uh, we uh, initially, we used to travel all over Europe, you know, France, Belgium, Germany, all over the place. And I just, the numbers of dogs that now I'm not saying, you know, depending, everyone's looking for different things, but the percentage of the, of dogs that passed my selection test, and it may be completely different from other people's, but the dogs that passed my selection test, the percentages were overwhelmingly higher with the Dutch KMPV program dogs than they were with all the other programs combined. So it just it just didn't make sense for me to spend half of my trip in five other countries when 80% of the dogs I was going to buy were coming from Holland anyway. So I really don't go to other countries when I'm shopping. I only go to Holland. Now, there are some other vendors who meet me in Holland with dogs that they may have, have gotten out of some of these other countries, but still the, the number of dogs that pass, the percentage of dogs that pass our selection test that come out of those other countries is so low, I, I don't even, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't even drive there from, from the middle of Europe, I don't even drive to those, or from the middle of Holland, I don't even drive to those other countries to test. If they bring them to me, you know, a good dog is where you find it, and we buy every good dog we can find, but I just have found that I've wasted a lot of time driving to other places in Europe to be disappointed. Uh, so if they have a dog, they're sure I'll take, you know, I just usually have them put their money where their mouth is and jump in their car and drive it to me. And if, if it's worth buying, I'll still buy it, but I'm not going to drive there to test them anymore. When you're out there testing dogs, I'm sure you you've gone to look at spe specific dogs, but when you're out there testing, do you, do you think ahead of, like this is a dog I might want to collect or you wait till you get back here and kind of figure that out as you're going. You know, when I'm testing dogs, it's interesting. I, I, I joke with some of these departments that come here that, you know, they'll send three patrol cars with two officers in each car and they'll allocate three days to test four dogs that I have available to test, you know, and I, I always chuckle because when I'm in Holland, you know, I, I may have two days to test all the dogs and it may be well over a hundred dogs that we're going to see. Uh, but but I found that the, the good dogs, the best dogs, it literally takes 30 seconds to evaluate. You, know, you, you just know the instant you see the dog come out of the trailer. And now, of course, sometimes you're, you're, you're wrong, but you can just look at a dog, see the way he's carrying himself, and, and almost predict the way that he's going to test. And especially if I bought dogs from this vendor before, and, you know, you kind of have, have a, a history there, and you, have, you form an opinion, you know, based on your experiences there. But... Uh, the good dogs, the really good dogs, like, uh, I don't know, if you remember, uh, Eric, if you remember Nico, I assume you also remember a big duchy named Dukas uh, oh, yeah. that was over there at the same time. You know, when when I tested Nico and Dukas both, I knew almost instantly that I was going to buy them. I mean, within three minutes of testing, I knew that I was going to buy them both. And I knew <laughs> as soon as I had Dukas on a suit, I knew I wanted to breed with that dog. The problem is the, the West Coast guys were in dire need of dogs at the time, and both of those dogs went straight to Wayne to the West Coast, and I didn't get a chance to collect either of them. 
Um, and I really consider that selling Dukas to be one of the big mistakes I've made in the last 10 years, probably in terms of dogs that I should have kept. But dogs like that, you just know immediately that that's the dog I'm going to buy. And and dogs that, that, that I can tell that fast I want to buy, almost always I also am interested in breeding with them, even if I don't know their pedigrees. But once I see their pedigrees, it you know, that typically will be the, the final decision for me. But, you know, if, if a dog like Dukas, if I didn't even see his pedigree, I'd still want to breed with him. Yeah, when I got there, he was in the kennel. Um, he had come back from a deployment. And um, so I got to work him a bunch because I worked a lot of the dogs that didn't have a handler with him. I had team one assigned to me, and then I helped with dogs that, that were uh, either pre-deployment without a handler or were waiting, um, had gotten back and were waiting to get reassigned. The problem is I'm five foot eight, so I'm not a giant. And Duke standing up was almost as tall as I was. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. So there were a couple times, you know, you get him out of the can. He was tall, gorgeous, muscular, and brought it on the bite work. His detection was really good. You could see that dog was all business, uh, which I like. You know, he he was he did sure. not care about you as a human being. He just you got him out. And worked him. There was a few times, though, you'd get him out and he would come. The first time you ever met a guy, he would come out of the kennel and wrap you. And, and yeah. you know, you, we couldn't allow that to happen. But uh, I never had an issue with, with uh, we, I just called him Duke. I never had an issue with Duke. Um, I worked him a lot. I did a lot of uh, interior um, explosive detection with him and um, when he didn't have a handler. And I, I liked working him. And Nico, I just, yeah, all I ever did with him was deco him. Yeah, definitely. Nico was a good dog, too. But in terms of physical ability, Dukas was, was far superior, but you know, Nico didn't know it in his head. <laughs> right. Nico was, Nico did everything fast. That was his thing. He <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. 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 He was mean, fast. You know, from a physical standpoint, oh, Dukas yeah. is just much more bigger and physical and, you know, more powerful physically. But anyway, you know, with dogs like that, going back to the original question, dogs like that, you just know, you know, you test the dog, but that, that brother to Nico, that dog, Rudy, that I, that I, it was a lot bigger and more powerful than Nico, but still not as big as Dukas. But, you know, I tested that dog shit three minutes and, and said, not only am I going to buy him, this dog will never be sold. Like this dog is going to stay here, you know, unless his litters are just garbage. Turned out they were not, they actually produced very well for me. So yeah, a dog like that, I knew I was going to keep, unfortunately, as luck would have it, that dog died of cancer at about four and a half years old. So you just, you just can't win for losing with some of those cases, you know, but Man, so speaking of which, some of the litters, uh, you owned a dog for a while named Ivo, the first one, right? So, you know, by all yep, accounts, Evo he, from Pink right, great dog, but you bred him a couple of times, and how'd that turn out? Yeah, I bred him several times. You're right, a fantastic dog, a very complete dog, a dog that I could have sold to any any SEAL team or any Army, you know, any Army cat group anywhere. Um, very, very good dog in all areas. But as a producer, I got to be honest, he was one of the worst producers I ever had here. Um, you know, and, and I was, the first couple times I bred him, uh, you know, I just, with a dog like that, I just didn't want to, I just honestly just didn't want to admit that his puppies weren't great, you know. And so I, I bred him to some dogs that, that hadn't been bred to before, and I bred him to, to some females that had been bred by some of my other stud dogs. And you know, that's what I really, when I bred him to, like, the last couple times I bred him, I bred him to females that had been proven from not only one, but more than one other stud dog prior to that. You know, these are older females that had a few litters out of, and always good litters, uh, particularly with some of the other males. Uh, and even those top-producing females, when I bred him to Evo, I just didn't get the quality that I that I was hoping for. And honestly, I mean, I, if we're just being completely honest, I had... Uh, you know, my, my health, my hip health rating, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. I've had over a thousand, over a thousand puppies born here. And of all the dogs that have been x-rayed over two, we're, we're at about 98% pat, you know, good, good hips and elbows, uh, which means we have about 2% of those dogs fail. And of those 2%, probably half of those came from that one stud dog. So... Mm-hmm. You know, he, he he had good hips, and he was a fantastic dog, one of the better dogs that I've bought, that I've kept for sure. Uh, but just as a producer, I just didn't have it. You know, it's unfortunate because I loved the dog. It was I, probably one of my favorite dogs just to hang out with. You know, I just loved the dog, and he loved me. Right, right. 
but it, you know, as a producer, that you know, you, you can't you can't be kennel blind and shit like that. Loving the dog doesn't make him a good producer. You know, he's got to he's got to he got to produce, and he just didn't for me. So, right. But you know that happened. So, Mike, one of the big things you know, where we talk up to people about breeding, and we're talking to you about all these dogs. Talk to us about the females, though. Where is it? Are do you have the females, or what are you looking for? Do you have you know, certain people that contact you or what is it you're looking for on the female side? Yeah. What I'm looking for in a female is, is very similar to what I look for in a male with the exception. And this is where, you know, my opinion about this may, may vary a little or may differ a little from other people's, but with my females, the one absolute requirement is they must be social. I, I don't care how strong they are in the work. If they're not social, I really don't like to breed with. I'm not saying I won't, but, and let me explain why, you know, we'll get back into the traits that I look for in a second. But if I get a dog that is not a female, that's not social, that is such a pain in the ass for me with, with her puppies. Because if I get a female in the welcoming box, let's say the puppies are three weeks old. Now their eyes are open. They really are starting to become aware of what's going on around them. Uh, and we have a lot of students in and out of these, in, in and out of our kennel all, you know, all year round. So, it's great exposure for the puppies. You know, we have our puppies meet by the time they're three weeks old, they may meet 40 people already. And, uh, when, when these new people walk into the whelping room, if I get a, if I have a very social female and she walks up to the fence with a very loose body posture and she brushes her body against the fence and invites these strangers to pet her, then all of those puppies feel that positive energy from mom and all these puppies run forward to, to meet these new people. And if that becomes their experience, they immediately have absolutely no concern from people whatsoever. They're already, they just, they follow mom and they become very social and they become very, very, you know, uh, they, very, they approach people with, with no, no worries. And that's important for me. If I get a female that's, even if it's not defensive at all, and I would never breed her if she was defensive, aggressive anyway, but even if it's all forward and all power and very, very serious, but she just stands in the whelping room and, and just, acts like an absolute bitch behind the fence and everybody that walks in, even if it's all forward, these three week old puppies see a really negative picture and they don't run forward to meet these new people. They, they kind of hang back in the back of the box and let mom deal with this because clearly mom's not sending off good positive vibes to the puppies here. So, you know, if my males want to act like a dickhead behind the fence, that's fine. The puppies don't emulate that. But the female absolutely is going to send the, the message to the puppies from, you know, from day one, uh, are people good or bad? And, you know, with our, it doesn't matter, you know, if I'm selling a dog to a police department or, or, a, or a team guy or, or anybody else in the country, rule number one is these dogs have to be social. I mean, I don't sell dogs to, like, you know, personal protection or junkyard dog type of situation. So all of our dogs must be social. They must bite, of course, but they must be social. And if I get a female that's really nasty with people and these puppies see that and they start to you know, mimic that behavior, it's just, it's just too much work for me to make them social when, it, when it, it's not necessary. Because if my, if my females are very social, the puppies automatically will become social. I don't even have to work to achieve that. Uh, so for me, that's really important. Now, going back to the, the working traits of a female, I make no exceptions because it's a female. I know there are some very good breeders, and I've seen some, some very nice dogs in Holland and seen their mothers and question that anybody would ever want to breed to that. But they still produce very, very good dogs. So I'm not saying you can't still produce good dogs if you don't have females that work. But, you know, I need dogs that are very, very confident, that are very, very drivey, have a lot of intensity to hunt have a lot of courage to stay in a fight, uh, and, and social, and, of course, healthy. A good female, to me, is worth three or four good males. You know, I mean, I, I, all I need is one good male. I need 15 good females. So it's, it's really hard to find good females. I have always I've got people asking me for, you know, what do you get for a good female? And my answer is I, good females I don't sell. Um, I'm always looking for good females, uh, but if I find a good female, it's not for sale. Yeah, how um, – so you have the litter there. Um, are you trying to get them – some of them sold as puppies, or do you raise them up and kind of see how things are going? Is your – you're trying to get them just into working situations, or how does it work there with your yeah, program? Yeah, so we, we do a little of both. We typically keep 
the best female from every litter for ourselves, and we put that in a foster home somewhere nearby. Uh, I could, I, but it, it, I'd have to go back and look at my list, but I own a lot of females that aren't even in my kennel. And, and maybe they'll never be bred, but I give them away to, to people uh, as fosters, and we always have the option to breed them later. So I'm never going to run out of females. Uh, and these are always pick females from every litter we have. So some of them may not work out, but, you know, if we pick, we have 10 or 12 litters a year. So it's not uncommon for me to, you know, to set back 10 or 12 females per year. Um, you know, you do that over 10 years and do the math. We got a lot of females out there, but uh, uh, the males, we typically sell the males. We, we may keep one or two males back uh, per quarter or maybe six a year. Uh, we sell the rest. Uh, and, you know, I found it's just, you know, if you have too many young puppies that you hold back, you might as well not keep any. You just, they just, to do it the right way, it takes a hell of a lot of time and a big commitment. And if you can't put the time into it, you're way better off selling them to somebody who can than just stockpiling your kennel full of dogs that are going to sit in the kennel and rot. Because it doesn't matter, you know, we all like to see good genetics, but the best genetics in the world will rot if you throw it in the kennel and, and lock it in there for two years. You still got to get them out and you still got to work them. And if you don't have the time to do that, you're better off just selling them to somebody who does and then buying them back later if you can. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, that's I, a good we, point. We see a lot of dogs that rot away just because guys yeah, got too sure. busy. Absolutely. Yeah, you're way better off selling them to somebody who's got one or two. You know, we've got, on any given day, I may have 30 dogs in the kennel, um, and I just don't have time to set six baby puppies back and, and pretend I'm going to be able to go out and work them twice a day, every single day like they need. You know, And if I know up front I don't have the time to do that, it's just better to, to place them somewhere where they will get that done. So we sell a lot of puppies, you know, I, although like going back to what we talked about a little earlier, as far as the, uh, you know, the numbers of dogs that you can find overseas nowadays is getting less and less. So the need to keep dogs back is getting greater and greater. And we do foster some males back, but if I don't have direct control over them, you know, I just, I don't really get the results. Uh, you know, if I take the best male we've ever produced and I put them, in a home with a farmer who punishes them every time he barks at something and every time he chases something and every time he picks something up. And, you know, next thing you know, you've got a, you've got a very confused, you know, animal that has, has not really been developed properly. And while he may be a hell of a producer, he, he's not going to be a, a dog that I can sell to, to, to you guys to work because he's going to have been sent, given so many mixed signals, you know, it's, it's very rare for a dog to, to, to grow up with those rules and still excel uh, in, in testing as a green dog when he's 18 months old. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, we're going to take a quick break real quick. When we come back, we're going to um, – Ted's got some questions for Mike about a specific dog, and then we'll talk to him a little bit more about Logan Haas. Let's take a second and talk about Highland Canine out in Harmony, North Carolina. Jason and Aaron Perguson started it in 2006 and have been training fantastic world-class dogs ever since. Uh, 2014, they were given their GSA contract, 80, Schedule 84, to allow them to sell to federal agencies and buyers. They do a full range of courses and a super diversified program for the School for Dog Trainers, Police Canine Sales and Training, Canine Instructor Courses, Canine Seminars, Detection Services, Executive Protection Dogs, and Search and Rescue Dogs. They also accept the GI post-9-11 bill so vets can get eligible students and attend and with eligible students can attend the program. They can do the 12-week Police Canine Instructor Course, 24 Master Trainer Program, or the 18-week Service Dog Trainer Program. And it wouldn't be a complete waste of your money because Jason and Aaron are one of, are two of the best detection people in the industry. Uh, you know, I've wanted to go out and hang out with them to do one of these detection courses out there. They do a great job, produce great content that you can follow online. Uh, speaking of which is at tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's the letter K, the number nine. That'll take you straight to it. it gives you the uh, syllabuses for all of their courses. It tells you when the next course is coming up and has loads of information. Hit them up. Highland Canine Training, LLC, tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. That's the Police Canine Association, or PK9A. They were formed in 1985 by handlers for handlers. They are a 501c3 nonprofit. 
that helps support active and retired canine units through fundraising and the sale of some badass merchandise. Please take a minute to check out their newly designed website at www.pk9a.com. That's pk9a.com. I've been a member there for 13 years and I'm the current training director there. I can tell you there are some big things in the works to expand the nonprofit to help canine units all over. If you're on Instagram, check them out for some amazing content at Police Canine Association or Police Canine Association on Facebook. Okay, we're back. Uh, so, Mike, before we interviewed you, uh, Ted talked to some folks, you know, in the in the business and said, "Hey, we're gonna we got Mike Subtle coming on," and they had something specific that they wanted Ted to talk to you about. Ted, go ahead. So. For whatever reason, for good or for bad and anything else, uh, Duco 2 plays such a prominent role in North America, basically English-speaking. Um, so here, South Africa, um, sometimes in Australia, in the dogs or in the lines that are here. And, you know, for good or for bad, for better or for worse, uh, that dog has kind of become – a unicorn. I mean, you still got, I mean, the dog's been dead almost 20 years and people are trying to recreate him. And, you know, there's all right. kinds of, there's all kinds of fucking stories about he's part pit bull or he's part fucking alien or unicorn or something. Right. So, and you know, right. eventually I'm going to have on, um, one of the guys that owned him and, um, you know, kind of talk about the whole process of owning Duco too and everything else. But from you, what I want to know is why right. is that fucking dog so important to people because you have people like it's like a fucking knee-jerk reaction now they're like oh i want a duco two dog i'm like why like what about i mean the motherfucker's been dead since clinton was in office and right. you know they and you say okay well what about duco two do you really like that you hope that you're going to get when you get a dog that is you know a great great grandson of duco two and they kind of look at me like i got a dick growing out of my forehead and i'm like seriously like what about that dog that you know of that you like so much that you've got to have it. I mean, there's been like 70 fucking dogs since him that have been great producers that are fantastic dogs and they don't even know their name. So why is he such right. an important dog in our community? Well, I think Duco too definitely is, you know, when I look at some really good, strong dogs that I like, dog, current dogs of today that I like, Duco too is in their pedigree oftentimes. I mean, I, I, I won't, dismissed that he's a significant producer in the KDD program. Um, but I have had some direct descendants from, I've had direct Duco two sons and, um, he, I, I, I think that he's a little overrated for what police departments look for today. At least the ones I I tell you what, the things I like about him are they're big, strong, impressive looking dogs. They almost always have, super tight pit bull type coats, which is all, I like all that stuff. I, aesthetically, I think they, they're, they're beautiful dogs, big heads, powerful biters. Um, they're a little loose and sloppy in the way they move. Um, they don't have the, like, I like speed and intensity. You know, we referenced that little dog, Nico. I like a dog that's put together like that that can move. Even if he weighs 100 pounds, I still like him to be put together like that. And some of the Duco stuff that I see, they, they put together a little more like a Great Dane than they are a, a pit bull. Um, right. So, for, you know, I don't, I, don't see, I don't see the same level of athleticism and agility that I see out of Django offspring. Now, Duco, of course, is a, is, a grand, is a grandfather to Django, but obviously there's other dogs that contribute into, into making Django. And in my opinion, I like what he produces better than the, than the direct descendants from Duco for today's police department, mostly because of the intensity and the agility, um, the, the intensity in the hunt and the retrieve. I mean, now the Duco dogs that I've seen have all been good biters, big, hard hitters, you know, powerful dogs on the field. And for the KNPV, that's probably, that's probably better. It's, it's fine. But for police departments in America, if I look at what my clients look for, when they come to me, what they test for today, I have a higher number of dogs like, my Django descendants that passed their selection testing than dogs of the Duco two direct descendants. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'm not saying they're not powerful dogs. I'm not saying, you know, I, hell I'd love to have Duco two. I could, I could retire just on selling a semen. If I never kept one puppy from them myself, but, Oh, exactly. Um, exactly. You know, I, I think 
I think Duco's a hell of a dog, but I think for today's modern police dogs, uh, personally, I think there's, I think Django, I think Django stuff is better. That's just my opinion based on what I've seen consistently here. It's interesting you say that. We have a dog that we brought in for a department that's local, and this dog's still close to us within 40 minutes. He's a Rico V-Son. Um, yep. which is very close to Duco, and he's a big motherfucker. He's 128 pounds. I mean, he is a yeah, giant, giant fucking Malinois. He's the biggest one I've ever seen, and you're yeah. 100% dead on when you describe the way that that dog moves, and he's not super athletic. He is super drivey. He bites like a fucking alligator, but, I mean, he definitely has some limitations that are due to his size, that are due to... A lot. I mean, a hundred percent down to what you are talking about, and you know his handler. Thankfully, is like six eight and like three hundred and ten pounds. So I mean, you know, they look normal together. I mean, I have another guy that's about that tall that has like a sixty pound, and I'm like, fuck, we could have gotten a bigger one for you or what, dude? So, but you know, I mean, so it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I see over and over and over and over again, like you know, dogs that are either left out or not mentioned or. You know, this dog is produced, you know, is a great, 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 whatever fucking grandson of Duco. And I'm like, you realize there's like seven generations that are in between there. And it's not even line bred. It's not even, you know, not 50-50, nothing. So, you know, yeah, I guess where I'm going with this is so what do you think? I mean, because you've got your own, you know, you have the own, you, you I really say have the own dogs that you have or what you have at Logan Haas. So, you know, what are people missing by, you know, getting Duco blindness, I guess is what I'm saying, like currently. Sure. Well, like I said, I think for me they're missing the the piece that is so important for the detection piece, which is is the intensity for the retrieve, uh, the intensity for the hunt. I, I just don't see that. Not on the same level. I mean, I'm not saying they don't hunt. Certainly they, they have drive and they, and they hunt varying degrees. But, uh, I, you know, I... I, I I see very similar things from me. I'm, I'm not being kennel blind. My old stud dog, Arco, kickers, same type of dog, you know, big, powerful, hard hitter, super biter. But he also didn't have the intensity of the hunt. Now, when I was breeding that dog 10 or 12 years ago, uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, the police departments that I was dealing with then didn't put nearly as much emphasis on the hunt that they do today. Uh, they cared a lot more about the power and the bite, and that dog produced very powerful biters, and everybody was happy. But, you know, today, if I had Arco in my breeding program today, I wouldn't use them as much as I did then because direct descendants from Arco lack the hunt drive. And when you start live breeding it, you can see it very, very quickly. The hunt drive just goes away. Um, and for me, it's that's, you know, we've all heard you can't, you can't bite them if you can't find them. But, I mean, like a nose on a police dog, is the most important thing, bar none. I would rather have a nose and no teeth than that all than all the teeth in the world and no nose. You know, so I got to have the hunt drive for for our clients, and, and I just don't think the Duco contributes that as well as other dogs. Perfect. So, uh, kind of that being said, like modern, you know, you talked a little bit about selection, going to Holland or going to Europe, and doing selections or whatever else. So. When you talk about selection, so and I'm not asking for a blueprint for the listeners here, but you know, like you said, you have you have guys that come out. I wish I had one. I don't have a blueprint for you. You know, I've done. I mean, I've gone to a lot of testings and taken a lot of dogs a lot of places, and everybody thinks that they have the fucking secret sauce, like they have some super secret fucking test or whatever it is. And you know, I I make the joke, and I'm like, the motherfucker's got to hunt, he's got to bite, and he can't be spooky. And which is a very, very oversimplification and the dogs has to be social. But, you know, I mean, I wouldn't even take a dog out if they're not social. But, you know, I what you said now, like if, you know, if you had you know Arco still around, you wouldn't use him as much today. So what do you see? So I guess I could do like the same question we gave Ritland. Like, what do you see the future of police canine and the future of military working dogs moving forward? And what should in your mind, we be as trainers and as handlers and as departments be looking for, for police dogs so that if, if we can't breed them ourselves, hopefully we can at least turn around and tell vendors and we can tell breeders, this is what we want. Yeah. Well, I think, I think in today's, you know, society in which we live, you can't have a, a, 
dangerous street sweeper out there like, you know, like we all kind of fantasized about 15 years ago. Uh, I just think the liability is way too great to have that dog. And the reality is those dogs don't necessarily equate to better performers in, in the patrol phase anyway. I mean, I held some of the best biting dogs I've ever seen were as social as a fucking Labrador when they weren't in drive and they weren't working. So, you know, I, I think first and foremost, you got to have a dog that's social, um, a dog that's very, very stable. Um, and for me, you know, if I, most of my clients deal with Malawas, and most of the dogs that I have in and out of here are, are Dutch, you know, came to D dogs, whether they're Brindle or Fonko, we'll call them all, you know, whatever they are, but right. not German Shepherds. Although I, I like German Shepherds, I just don't see that many that pass our testing anymore. But um, so when you're dealing with a Malawat, you're kind of already dealing with a dog that should have usable drive, as long as his nerve strength doesn't get in the way and cause that drive to diminish. Um, you know, as a general rule, most Malawats have enough drive if they have the nerve strength for that drive to, to maintain where it is. And I, you know, you, you look at these little French ring dogs and God, they got, they got enough drive for three fucking police dogs, but sometimes they don't have the nerve strength when you, when the environment gets a little weird and, and, you know, shit starts going on around them. Sometimes the wheels can fall off a little bit and all that prey drive on the field doesn't really do you any good if. Now we're, there's flashbacks going around on the third story of this slippery floor, dark warehouse, and, and all this movement, and, you know, the nerve diminishes, and now the drive diminishes, and now all that drive that he had on the field is we can't tap into any of it. He's kind of worthless. I'd much rather have a dog that's super stable no matter where we go, a dog that just doesn't give a shit environmentally about where he's at, even if he's only, a, like, we'll take that Dukas dog, for example. By no means would I classify Dukas as a, as a level 10 in drive compared to a French ring dog on the field. Uh, but it just doesn't matter what environment you put that dog in or dogs like him. It doesn't matter if you're rattling around on, in a Blackhawk helicopter or you're jumping out of it or you're in the mad middle of a gunfight. His stability, may, you know, he maintains that level of drive just like he does in your backyard when he's in all those other environments. So if you have a dog that's super, super stable and very social, for me, that's more important than a dog that's just got screaming intense prey drive, but he's got shit nerves and he's super reactive. So I need a dog that's got pretty high thresholds to the environment, pretty high thresholds in defense, you know, meaning that it takes a lot to tap into that. Um, you know, and, and I don't, you know, medium to low thresholds and prey is fine, but as long as he's got, you know, what 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 a Malinois should have in prey, he doesn't have to be like the, the highest prey drive Malinois you've ever seen. As long as he's got good drive for a Malinois and he's still got good stable nerves and, and a bomb-proof, you know, stable temperament, I for me, that's what I think most police departments, when they come here, that's the ones that really know the the most about what they're looking for that's what they tend to be looking for is first and foremost, social, stable temperament. And then we'll make sure that he hunts like an idiot. And then we'll make sure that he bites well, kind of in that order. Yeah. You know, know, it's interesting. You mentioned that, that dog that I was just talking about that big one we have here, he's exactly like that, that dog, he either doesn't work in defense or it takes a, it takes a ton to push him into there. And I mean, we have, thrown that dog through drywall and with i mean all kinds of crazy shit and he literally just doesn't care i mean you know we tell him to bite he bites it's a done deal we take him off or we out him or whatever we do and then literally he can then go straight back into doing obedience and everything else and he is exceptionally clear-headed when he works and i never worry about that dog you know, flying off the handle and getting fucking bent out of shape and trying to bite me or anything else. Now, we have sold dogs and some that are still working that I'm always super careful with when I'm around. And, you know, they hold grudges or they remember the time that I shoved them into oh, a yeah. fucking trash can or that I pushed them through drywall or, and, you know, and it could have been months, but all of a sudden they remember and, you know, they give me the look and I'm like, you motherfucker. So it's always in the back of my mind. And, you know, I'm a hundred percent on, you know, and I'm pretty sure Eric is too on this as well, but the dogs that you're talking about, and that's what I say, you know, I mean, as long as somebody gives me a dog that has, you know, more than enough prey, 
I'll take them as long as they have nerves so deep you can't see the bottom. Because at least I know right. I can predict when and where and how they are going to work all the time. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't even give it. I never even test a dog. I never test a dog's aggression. Never. And then my clients that come here don't ever test dog's aggression. I don't give a shit if he's, if he's aggressive. I don't care if he's got in-house defense. If he's got blinding, blindingly bomb-proof nerves, like his incorrigible desire to go work, I don't care what drive he's working in. If he will not stop and he's not going to run, I don't, that's all I care about. I don't care if he's mad at anybody or not. I'd rather he not be mad. Mad is an emotion that gets in the way. You know, I'd rather he not be mad. Um, I, the best, by far, the best police dogs I've bought, sold, or even seen didn't have a lot of aggression. And they just fucking nuke people on the streets yeah, because uh... they got – they got all the other pieces that they need. And for me, that's most important. I always tell the guys that um, when I'm looking at the dogs, and I like the dogs when we're at training, that they kind of just stand there because they know they're the baddest motherfucker in the valley. They don't oh, yeah. They don't need to show you all that because they know. They're like, listen, dude, I, I got it. I'm not worried about you. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, if you let, let me preface this by saying I've never in my life even owned a pit bull. So having said that, we know I'm not, I'm not a dog fighter. I've never even owned a pit bull. Never even owned any kind of bulldog. But, but I appreciate them for what they are a lot. And, you know, if you, and I've watched lots and lots of, you know, YouTube Mexican pit bull fights on YouTube, enough just to watch the way that these dogs behave. And, like, there's not a barking and snarling and hackling or any of this other display of bullshit, you know. They're wagging their tails as fast as they can wag their tails, leaning into the collar as hard as they can. And when they're allowed to go, they run full on without hesitation right into the side of each other. And there's no growling and there's no snarling and there's none of this other bullshit that you see. I want a police dog to bite a man with that mentality. And there's not any real aggression there. I mean, by definition, there, you know, but there's not any real defense there. It's, it's all prey aggression. It's just how fast can I get to him and fight him because I love to fight. Because I just love to get in there and bite him, and I like the rough. I just like the, the, the satisfaction of, of, of that game. That's what I'm looking for. That's the way I want my police dogs to see a man. When we give him permission to go, I want him to go with that mentality. Yeah, Eric and I both are on that page, and we both train that way. And, you know, when I talk to guys that are selecting or when I talk to departments that don't have dogs from us, you know, they talk about, mythic drives or they talk about this and they talk about that and you know the reality of the situation is a lot of these guys i mean shit eric can tell you some stories about dudes tracking i mean they had some last week where they track up on guys and you know they're passive and yeah uh, and if you have and this is what i always tell people like if you have a dog that views a person that is laying on the ground with their back to the dog as a threat then you have a fucking problem because at the point that they become an actual threat then you're really going to find out what he's made of. And, you know, the dogs don't understand the difference between a threat or somebody that's acting threatening or the difference between a threat and acting threatening. So not everybody that acts like a threat is threatening and vice versa. And, you know, I tell my right. handlers, I'm like, it should be a foregone conclusion. You don't – you're not surprised when you pull out your Glock and you pull the trigger and it fucking fires. When you tell this dog to bite somebody, well, no matter what they're doing, they're going to do it. They don't know there's between kids. They don't know between old women – shitheads, whoever right. it is, whatever you point them at, they're going to bite it. And right. whether, no matter what they're doing. So, you know, I can't, and you know, Eric and I touched on this in one of the other episodes, but that level of needing to work and that level of clear headedness that doesn't need input from a fucking decoy or from a shit bag is what we want. We say bite, they bite no matter what. And the yeah. engagement and the, in the, you know, and my partner, Scott, you know, this is his big thing. We've got to have a dog, just like you said, that is super, super even keeled in nerves and that we can be giving commands to people and yelling and the dog stays focused on somebody laying on the ground. And if they can still, you know, passively non-compliant, then they get smoked. And yeah. that I see and I, you know, started out doing this by fixing dogs that had engagement problems and dogs that had equipment problems. But what I ended up learning, you know, in hindsight was exactly what you're saying is that dogs that don't have a ton of nerve that don't feel like they need to bite, 
if you're not overtly doing something stupid, then they're going to fail at the most fantastic time. And yeah. and it's fucking scary to see some of that because to this day, I mean, I talked to somebody last week at SHOT Show and they were like, oh, I want the dog to have fucking fight drive and we want this. I'm like, oh, my God. And, you know, I, I can't even – and I just kind of grin and I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. And <laughs> so I'm like, holy shit. So I think you're right. I think I think human emotion, people want dogs to be serial killers. And in reality, I just want to drop a leash and then smoke somebody. Like, that's their job. So, yeah. uh, end of story. Public service announcement to any canine handler that's listening to this right now. If you're not working passive decoys, you're making a gigantic mistake. Because this passive person waiting on you to round the corner when your dog is standing there is the one that's going to kill you. Um, we had a dog killed, Mike. I'm sure you probably heard of Jethro a couple years ago up here in Canton. Um, he was shot and killed by a guy that was laying in wait for his partner. Yep. The dog yep. rounded the corner. He got shot four times in the chest. So it tells me the dog's going up on the guy. But he was laying in wait. We work on that stuff because... That's what guy people do now. They believe if I just lay here, the dog won't bite me, and this dude will come looking for him. And that's the people that's going to kill you. So, Mike, um, you have pretty much a full service jo- uh, business there, at Logan Haas. Let's for the canine guys that are listening. What um, what do you have there? Do you have pre-trained? You have green? You have all the above? Do you have handler classes? What what do you offer there, real quick? Yeah, we kind of offer a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of canine trainers courses now, uh, short classes, three-day classes, five-day classes. We teach a four-week a four week detection class. Uh, I don't have any full-on, you know, 16-week uh, canine trainers courses yet, although that is in the works. Uh, as far as dogs we have, you know, in inventory, uh, mostly we have young dogs that are up, that are started. Uh, I don't have any title dogs. Well, I'll probably have a few title dogs in May, either PH1 dogs. Right now, I don't have any title dogs here. I don't have any fully trained dogs here. Got a couple really nice young labs that we're working in detection that will be finished here pretty soon. Um, and a couple pretty nice green dogs uh, that, you know, they're not quite old enough to, to talk about yet, but, but may be available, you know, pretty soon. But, uh, you know, as far as we can get whatever anybody wants, it just uh, it just takes time and money. You know, we can get whatever whatever people need. So uh, tell us about uh, the mud run, and then tell us about the course you have coming up with Don. Yeah, our mud run, this will be our second year. We're really super excited about that. Uh, last October was our first year, and it, it was awesome. I mean, the feedback we got was incredible. I couldn't – it was way better than I expected. Um, and I think this year is going to be a hell of a lot bigger. We, as a matter of fact, I know we've already got commitments to – three times the size of what it was last year. Um, it's a, essentially, it's a, you know, a three and a half mile uh, course through our farm. Uh, it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of interest about 30 last year had 32 obstacles. This year we'll have a, a little bit more and some pretty cool, some, some rope work, some, uh, some, some zip lining with the dog, uh, some pretty cool stuff. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it, um, because there's some, some surprises that we're going to have this year, but, um, uh, <laughs> I think it'll be, uh, if you're not busy that, uh, that October 7th, 8th weekend, whatever that is, it's a like Columbus Day weekend. Uh, I think it'd be worth your drive. It's, it's, it's a pretty good time. Yeah, I'll put big, the, big uh, barbecue I'll... afterwards. Uh, you know, we have, uh, have a whole, whole hog barbecue. Uh, pr- pretty good time. Pretty good party. Do some shooting afterwards on Sunday, some dog training as well. So plan, plan the whole weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Free camping here. We got about, uh, there's, I don't know, we got, We'll have about 400 acres mowed uh, for campers and RVs, um, and we we can get more if we need to. But I think we have, we have plenty plenty of property to park everybody on, and yeah, it's, it should be a good time. I'd like to see yeah. you guys come on out. I'll put some uh, I'll put the information in the show notes for everyone about how to or where to get information about that. And then you've got a seminar with the detection ninja Don Blair. What is that? April. Uh, well, we're doing yeah, we're doing a seminar with Don up in Northern Virginia in April, and then in May we're doing a four week detector class here with Don as well. Now Don's not going to be here the whole four weeks. I'm going to that class is going to be broken up. Uh, I'm going to teach the first two weeks. Don's going to come in and teach the third week, and then we'll teach the the last week of the class. But 
Yeah, we got a couple things. We we do we do a fair bit of work with Don, and, and you're right, man. He is a detection ninja. The man's got twenty plus years experience with customs and border protection as as their head canine trainer. And you know, we all we all hear people talk about, oh, I've trained hundreds of dogs or whatever. But you know, Don's the only guy I know that he he literally took. You know, he would take students on training day one and work them through a sixteen week class or whatever. You know, big classes. Graduate them on a Friday. And then on Monday, he'd pick up another class and do it again. And he did that for shit 20 years. So, I mean, there's a wealth of experience there. And that's, you know, that's experience with U.S. Customs and Border Protection. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. Right. Well, uh, Mike, this has been great. Um, You know, the funny thing is after talking to Ritland and talking to you, I I never really got into the puppy stuff. Um, mainly just because of uh, being busy or whatever. And, and I've contacted a few of the people that have dogs that have come through me that are stellar dogs. And I'm like, hey, uh, you interested maybe in getting permission to let me uh, collect some semen from your dog? And uh, yeah. so I, I definitely want to try to uh, get into it. Um, so we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. Tell us, Mike, where everybody could find you on social media, for example. Yeah, so you know, on Facebook, you can Mike Subtle. Uh, I, don't, I don't. My friends list is maxed out there, but you can still follow me. But everything that I post on my personal page is also posted on the Logan Haas Kennels Facebook page. Uh, the girls Megan and Danielle have have started a uh, Instagram Logan Haas Kennels Instagram. I don't know anything about that, but that that is out there. That does exist. And then the website we're about to launch a brand new website uh, here the next. Uh, we, hopefully, we're ten days away from having that thing finished. Uh, it's going to have a, a really elaborate video subscription uh, service there as well. So, you know, we've been I, – I post some random videos, you know, from time to time on Facebook. Um, but we're, we're building a pretty big library of much more detailed, much more informative training videos. And we're going to release this video subscription service in the next couple weeks uh, where you can come in, log on to be – it'll be uh, – you'll, you'll have a password. You can go on anytime you want. It's going to be uh, – the first month we're going to have a – open for everybody for five dollars for the first month and then after that you can test the waters if you like it uh if you don't like it cancel it if you like it it's going to roll over to ten dollars a month and it'll be a flat rate of ten dollars a month i'm going to guarantee at least uh three videos a week and probably will be more than that some of those videos at least three working dog videos a week and we may also have a couple just stupid pet dog videos as well for some other people you know because once our social media (laughs) you know i I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but you know, there for a long time we were running about five or six thousand core working dog people on our social media, and I love that because no matter what I posted, I had five or six thousand people that were at least on board, and we could have intelligent conversations about it. Oh, here last it comes. year I went out. <laughs> yeah, last, last year we went out and we adopted some little rescue puppies from under a trailer here in West Virginia. Literally, we drug them out from under a trailer park. They were about four weeks old, absolutely starving to death eat full worms, full fleas. Anyway, we, we nursed them back to health, and we had, we, there was 14 of those puppies. We used them in some of our trainer's courses, and we placed them once we got them back to health and, 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 and got them kind of like front-loaded in some marker training and stuff. We, we, you know, we adopted them all out to people. And I kept one and started doing some playing around, doing some videos with them. Well, some of those videos went absolutely viral. Some of those videos have over 5 million views now. And literally in about three months, I went from, five or 6,000 working dog people following my Facebook page to now almost 50,000. And those, that additional 45,000 are not necessarily all working dog people. Some of those are, let's say they're not working dog people. So now everybody knows what you mean. Now, when (laughs) I go back and I post the same videos that I used to post prior to those little rescue trailer park puppies, you know, puppies doing what, what our puppies do here, which is biting and retrieving and hunting and all the shit that working dogs have to do. Well, now i got 45,000 other people who just found out about me because of the little rescue puppies that I'm trained to, trained to play piano and push a skateboard and open the mailbox and stuff. And that's all cute, but that's not what I do here. Really. That's what I did for a short time making those videos, but that's not what I really do. And so now i got 45,000 people who, who see me do what I really do, which is train puppies to bite people. And they just think I'm a fucking monster, you know. So, uh, so we're we're kind of dealing with that now, which is entertaining. <laughs> so, but where I was going with that, we are going to include some a couple videos per week of some pet related stuff to satisfy those other forty thousand people. 
but but our core group group of working people is where we're going to continue to concentrate on with our video subscription. And that's going to be at least three working dog videos a week, whether it be tracking or biting or detection, um, shaping, marker training, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be uh, working dog related. So we're pretty excited about that. I think that's going to be, we've gotten a lot of requests for that for years. So I think it's time to watch it. Yeah. I've been watching some videos of yours lately, especially all the pretty cool stuff you're showing with uh, different dogs and different imprinting factions and everything. And, People that are really into that stuff would really enjoy it. It's it's pretty good. You you do a good job explaining all that. Um, is there if say a department wanted to talk to you about dogs, is there an email they can get a hold of yet? Yeah, loganhoskills dot com. I'm the only one that gets that email, so uh, you know we get several emails a day. But I, I always try to at night. I try to answer all the emails. So uh, you know, if you try to call me, a lot of times my phone doesn't work out on the farm. But if you send me a Facebook message or an email. I always get them, and I always reply back. All right, Mike. Well, I really appreciate it. This was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I like I like these things. You know, I train dogs every day, and I these things where I get to learn stuff like that is always awesome. Um, Ted, you got anything coming up? Um, we're getting ready to pack up and head to Vegas for uh, round two uh, for Bravo three uh, with the kids from Tripwire Operations. So uh, this will actually air after that, but. Um, I think it's going to happen again next year. So, um, we'll be doing that. And then, uh, I'm heading to Florida to do a high risk deployment seminar, uh, in Ocala, Florida in February. So, uh, that'll be coming up here pretty quick. And then hopefully I'll be back home. So at least I can get some training done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I'm still going to be here in Ohio freezing. Uh, well, I got Vegas next week. I, I do get Vegas next week, uh, with you. And then, you know, um, again, a lot of people don't know this. My full-time assignment at, at my department is dogs. That's it. And so I have a class going on right now till the end of February, then in-service training for a while, and then we'll see what goes on from there. So again, awesome. thanks everybody for checking in. Uh, episode number four is in the can. Excellent. Thank you. Working Dog Radio is edited and co-produced by Dustin Wright at Bracket Designs. Be sure to hit him up at BracketDesigns.com for any branding or content-related work you have. We were graciously granted permission to use this rad music by Brother Deeg. Go buy him a beer at Brother Deeg, spelled D-E-G-E, dot blogspot, dot com, spelled D-E-G-E, or hit him up on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or any other music streaming stores. Check the show notes for links to both of these creative geniuses.